Well, we welcome you to episode five of the Six Lessons broadcast. We're very excited to introduce you to some early application challenges and early publications that helped develop, in my mind, the details of advanced adhesive dentistry. As I mentioned early, my Adventures in Adhesive Dentistry that led to the Six Lessons development began in 1995. And that first lecture with Ray Bertolotti was a two-day lecture in Huntington Beach, California, Surf City, USA, a city I knew very, very well. But at that lecture, I was introduced to many, many new concepts. One was bonding to dentin. Bonding to enamel had been established in the 50s. But now this is 1995, bonding to enamel was not my problem. I could do an adhesive restoration on anterior teeth, bonding to enamel, with predictability. But introducing adhesive dentistry in the posterior teeth, which is the vast majority of teeth that dentists work on, was fraught with problems. You know, we figured, well, we know there's problems with amalgam, teeth fracture. But this adhesive dentistry in the back just was a joke. Well, that was from the mid-80s to the mid-90s in my life. And, of course, the challenges of traditional dentistry, mechanically retained, um, led me to enjoy dentistry less and less and less. And uh, then I had a, a ray of hope introduced in 1995 by Ray Bertolotti uh, introducing new products, and these new products were from Japan. I had never heard of the company called Kurare. It was a company that was established in Japan before World War II. It was a manufacturer of rayon. The city that it was in was Kurashiki. So Kurashiki rayon became Kurare. Kurare is a made-up word. It's not a Japanese word. I had never heard of this company. And Ray Bertolotti said that they had these adhesive products that were bonding, and you could do posterior restorations. And he introduced me to a name, Takafusiyama. He referred to him as the father of adhesive dentistry. Adhesive dentistry had been in the United States. Uh, even dentin adhesion was advocated from the mid-'80s to mid-'90s. but had very poor results. And so I was skeptical, of course, but I was referred to this lecture by a friend of mine who had high integrity and he, and he knew my frustration. But the, the real lecture kind of hook that Ray Bertolotti would use would be about bonding veneers. And bonding veneers uh, are much more conservative than cutting down front teeth for crowns which was the standard before adhesive dentistry. But these bonding of veneer products, using these QRA products, that was, to me, uh, very necessary to have these products. But then on the back teeth, bonding veneers on the front very rarely had decay as part of the uh, pre-bonding diagnosis and treatment. But on back teeth, there's decay all over the place. We knew that all the time. And so when Ray Bertolotti introduced me to this caries-detecting dye, 
that really got my interest because I knew that caries in the back teeth was a common problem that I had and something that would help me in my diagnosis, visualization, and treatment of caries seemed like a very important. The first challenge I had after Ray Bird's Eyes Lecture is getting these products. Pura Ray had some products that were available, but the most important product or the one that actually Ray Berlotti introduced me to that seemed to be a breakthrough was caries detecting dye. And so caries detecting dye in 1995 was not available with FDA approval in the United States. From 1995 through 1996, I had no caries detecting dye. I could get the QRA products because I used those. And there was a product that Ray Bertolotti recommended from Bisco called Beastfill 2B. This Bisco product 2B and the technique that I was taught to use it with by Ray Bertolotti had major scientific flaws. And so when I did it with the products and the technique that I learned in 1995, by 1998, I was seeing failures. If something fails in a clinical practice, it could be I'm just a bad dentist. I just can't do it. Can't see it. Can't handle the products. I didn't understand something. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to blame yourself for failures. but. At some point, you get enough feedback to know, I need to know more about why this is failing. And the chemical cure failures without <laughs> caries detecting dye are just as predictable as any kind of failures, mechanical or adhesive failures that happen regularly at three to five years because caries is the number one killer of bonds to dentin. And so in 1997, I got my first shipment from Clinician's Choice had the carriage taking dye. I prepared a tooth, class two cavity preparation. And of course, I'm very careful. I'm using my spoon excavator. I'm using my explorer to make sure I've got carriage removal complete because, you know, I'm on the line. I'm, I'm going to test this technology and, you know, my integrity or my skill is being questioned. You know, I, I, I can't stand rejection, you know, like Marty Fly's father. <laughs> in Back to the Future, but the rejection that came when I used caries detecting dye on this preparation was very discouraging because I put the caries detecting dye on and there were areas that were definitely stained not pink, but red, meaning the collagen had been denatured through the decay process and this would be a place where you would get 10% of your bond strength at best. But because of polymerization dynamics, which I didn't understand in 1997, it would be failing uh, almost immediately. The polymerization shrinkage would go towards the vest bond and away from this area, usually at the DEJ, that still had residual decay. You know, after that initial shock, I said a few words that I usually don't use in public. I was, uh, I was guided to remove that area. So I went in with my round burr and, or a, a spoon excavator, removed that, and then rinsed it out and then stained it again. Again, I had some areas that I had not uh, removed all the decay, so I had to do it again. And then I removed a little more, and then there's still, it, it took about three to five 
applications before even in this simple class two restoration that was not massively decayed as many of our uh, pathologies are when we deal with decay. After three to five applications, I got to the point where it didn't stain. And then I continued my technique, which at that time was a total etch with photobond. Again, unfortunately, the total etch with phosphoric acid with photobond was not recommended by the manufacturers. The technique that had been recommended by the manufacturer, Cuare, in this product, which is called Liner Bond or Liner Bond 1, was the first time to have a photo-initiated dental bonding system, which was called Photobond. But before the Photobond was to be used in this Liner Bond system, two steps, one a conditioning step, which removes or thins out the smear layer, that's the conditioning step. But if you use phosphoric acid for that conditioning step, you get a demineralization of 5 microns, which expresses and allows expression of pulpal fluid into the bonding system. You don't want that. The other thing is that this conditioning step, which was a citric acid, organic acid step, had much less demineralization, so it was easier to deal with that transudation coming out of the dental tubules, which Fusiyama understood as being a a problem, but he didn't understand it in in great detail. Fusiyama's successor, Hosoda, was the professor at Tokyo Medical and Dental University that developed this liner bond system with photobond. But that first step of mild conditioning not strong condition with phosphoric acid, which Fusiyama had recommended in his first uh, system, which was called Clearfield F. There was Clearfield F, F1 and F2. And then Photobond was the fourth generation of the Kuare product. So the successor to Fusiyama realized that phosphoric acid was too aggressive. And so he modified it using this calcium citrate solution. But then after that, he also understood that any time that you acid remove the hydroxyapatite, you're left with this collagen. The collagen is not supported. So these collagen columns, that used to have hydroxyapatite supporting them so they'd stand up. Once you took away hydroxyapatite, then they collapsed. And this collapse of the collagen meant there couldn't be a good infiltration in that total depth of the, of the etching. So the solution that Hosoda developed was a, called a priming step. And that priming step was with a, a salicylic acid primer. Salicylic acid, that's aspirin. You know, it's just a nice little product that they found very useful. But this uh, SA primer... Now, it took this collapsed demineralized collagen and it kind of puffed it up. And when that SA priming puffed up those collapsed collagen, then all of a sudden the infiltration of this dual cure bonding system, photobond, was able to penetrate better. And then that would be polymerized. And then the last step in this system, which was called liner bond system was protect liner f the world's first flowable composite and with that flowable composite the thinness of the adhesive which was in 
photobond inherently. Photobond's adhesive layer was too thin. That worked great on enamel because in enamel, that thinness of the adhesive layer, it might be totally air inhibited because air inhibition is usually about 10 microns. If you air thin an adhesive layer, it would be even thinner. Unfortunately, the idea of making a dual cure system that mixed hydrophilic and hydrophobic elements, which Photobond did, it worked great on enamel. It was great for bonding veneers. They were mostly bonding to enamel. No C factor, no carries, and no transudation coming out of the enamel. And the air inhibition, if there were air inhibition was there, as soon as you put on that next layer or cemented your veneer, it not, was not a problem. But the fundamental difference between bonding to enamel and bonding to dentin was not made clear in the teaching of early teachers like Ray Bertolotti. He may have made some reference to it, but not in the detail that he needed to. Well, you know, a person like me, I'm just getting educated, paying the money, buying the products, using them the best I can, and then it takes some time to see if you have some clinical failures or successes. And it took about two to three years to see some leakage, particularly in these deep boxes that were four millimeters or deeper. And so that was the same place where amalgams were leaking most often. So that wasn't surprising. But in my mind, I'm going, okay, so I've changed my technique. The top looks white. Patients like that. I'm not getting a lot of sensitivity, but I did get some. And at two to three years, now I'm starting to see some failures in these deep box areas. What is going on? So in 1995, I'm starting with an initial bibliography that Ray Bertolotti gave me on initial works that uh, impacted adhesive dentistry. But I had continued on my own at the University of Utah Medical Library. And then I had a great, <laughs> a great blessing. My house was less than a mile away from Ultradent Dental Producer, manufacturer, Ultradent. And uh, I had another connection in that the first dentist that I associated with in 1981, Roger Hicks, was a good friend of the founder of Ultradent, Dan Fisher. Roger Hicks introduced me to the first product that Dan Fisher made, which was a hemostatic solution that made crown impressions easier by stopping the bleeding. Uh, without as much cord packing. Anyway, this was his first little syringe. He made it in his kitchen and then in his garage. And then I met Dan Fisher there when he was starting to first expand his business. Well, you know, time goes on and this is 1995, 1996. And in those 15 years, Dan Fisher had made his products. And the big cash cow for Ultradet was, of course, opalescent bleaching. So the gel bleaching solution that took the world by storm <laughs> made a lot of money for Ultradent. And so Ultradent, with that money, they tried to do what they could to uh, make other products, and they had some success with other products. But one thing they did when they built their new facility here in South Jordan was they uh, established a library. This would have been about 2000. Let's back up a little bit. I continued every year to take two courses from Ray Bertolotti, one at Yosemite, one at Lake Tahoe. And then every time I got a new reference or other references that gave me other references, because every time a 
article is published, it has references, and you can use those to build your bibliography. But between 1995-1998, when I'm working out, first I get caries detecting dye, and then I'm starting to see that this uh, photobond system that I was taught by Ray wasn't very good. I got an invitation in 1998, but it was an invitation, I believe, maybe to everybody who went to the 88 convention in San Francisco. And I looked at it, and it was like, wow, they're going to have some scientists talking about the things that I'm looking into. Uh, Bonding systems, the difference between bonding systems, total etch. At that time, there was the the talk of a self-etch system, but it really wasn't introduced to me personally uh, until uh, that same year. Ray Bertolotti introduced me to Lionerbond 2V which was an evolution of Linerbond 2 that he didn't really cover because there was pretty much a progression in 1995, 96, 97, 98 from uh, Clearfill uh, New Bond, which was in the F2, F3 systems, and then the Photobond system, and then the 2V2 system, Linerbond 2 system, eliminated the etching step, the conditioning step, because they had discovered in their experimentation an unintended consequence that when they use this 10 MDP monomer, which was new with what's called new bond and then carried on into photobond, this 10 MDP with etching, it worked on extracted teeth, but it also worked without etching. This they didn't expect. So upon investigation, they found out that the chemistry of this long organic molecule that had an inorganic phosphate acid group on one end was acidic enough to do that slight demineralization, which we call self-etching, that was first actually done in 1951. We talked about that with Severton. Uh, But the product, Linerbond 2, was the breakthrough self-etching system that started to get tested immediately. And this is in the mid-90s, 1997, there was a 10-year follow-up. So they were starting to follow this clinically from 1997 to 2007 was that clinical test that Momoi and uh, Akimoto performed. But this Linerbond 2 was the breakthrough. But in this meeting... In 1998, that I was invited to by Densply, Ray Bertolotti was there. I'd been training with him for three years. He was at the meeting, so I sidled up to him and sat right next to him during the during the meeting. You know, it was a full day meeting. I got to you know have have lunch with you know my idol, my mentor, Ray Bertolotti, and we heard one speaker, very important speaker named George Perdigao, who got his PhD at Lewin Catholic University. Lewin, Belgium. He was the next um, PhD student after Bart Van Meerbeek, 1993, and then 1995. Perdigal became the next uh, expert in scanning electron mas- microscopy and ultrastructure investigation with transmission electron microscopy. It was actually his wife that did all the hard work, but she did all the hard work. He got all the credit, and he's now the speaker at the ADA convention, 1998, in San Francisco. And I'm pretty, pretty impressed with him, but I'm kind of following Ray Bertolotti to figure out, you know, what's up. He's saying you should use this new product, Prime and Bond NT. (laughs) 
we can have a whole half-hour lecture on prime and bond NT on how terrible that is as a bonding system. But Ray Bertolotti and his company are now thinking they're going to do a bonding system, but they still don't have everything that they need to uh, make this new system. But Ray and Bertolotti at that uh, lunch that I had with them told me about he had had information from Tokyo about a new product called Omega Bond. This is 1998. Now, there's nobody listening to this that is a dentist in the United States anyway that's ever heard of Omega Bond because Omega Bond was never marketed as Omega Bond in the United States. But when it came and was introduced, basically 1999, 2000 time frame, SE Bond, Ray Berlotti uh, introduced that to his followers. And as soon as we started using that, we started to have immediately less sensitivity. And then as the years went on, we're seeing that these bonds were able to be established, particularly if we use them in an indirect restoration. In other words, direct restorations were still seen as, as stressful. Fusiyama and his books, which were now available, 1993 is the first edition that I got of his second book. And in 1993, he's still saying, be careful of light-cured materials, which were all the rage, because they are the ones that shrink too quickly, cause too much stress, and this is the uh, cause of many failures. But Fusiyama also published in his 1980 book and 1993 book a technique which is called directed shrinkage, which Ray Berlotti taught for years and years, turns out that it was really flawed. Fusiyama hypothesized that the heat of the, na of the body coming through the tooth was going to accelerate the polymerization of his chemical cure adhesives and chemical cure composites, which he only recommended. Fusiyama never really recommended light cure approaches. Only his successor, Hosoda, was seeing that you couldn't avoid light cure. They had some advantages and they turned out to have really good advantages because the light cure initiation polymerized the adhesives better. In other words, these camphor quinone initiators were so unstable that once you put the light on it, they started free radical production much more tensely, five times as intense as the old-fashioned peroxide, tertiary, and quaternary amine reactions that started the free radical production like from the traditional epoxy uh, composites that came from the 30s. So this transition from chemical cure to light cure caused problems. Nobody really was talking about those problems. But the main problem that I didn't know in 1998 that I didn't really put together until two years later was this hierarchy of bondability. In other words, the ability to grab on to two structure is directly related to how rough that surface is, and the rough surface is hydroxyapatite. Every time you take the hydroxyapatite off, all you have is a noodle-like, slippery, one wet collagen molecule to bond to that was the <laughs> dream of one of the real founders and pioneers in adhesive dentistry, Nobu Nakabashi. 
Nawu Nakawashi and David Pashley wrote this book, and it was published in a way available for sale in 1998 at the 88 convention. When I bought this book in San Francisco, it was like I had been given the Rosetta Stone. I'm better than the Rosetta Stone because I couldn't read, you know, Japanese. I couldn't read the the language that was coming out. But this Japanese researcher who was known at that time in 1998 as the one who gave the title to the hybrid layer. And so in the title of the book, Hybridization of Dental Hard Tissues, the person who named the hybrid layer, who first investigated with transmission electron microscopy, what the hybrid layer looked like, as you read this book, which I have done many, many times, I could see that Nakabashi wanted you to buy his bonding system, which was called 4Meta. 4Meta was a bonding system that's still available in some products today. The long story, we won't go into all the details, but basically, his belief was that you could bond to collagen. And so his products were designed so that they could be attracted to collagen and stabilize the collagen. But what Nakawashi didn't realize is that the collagen, in, even if it's encapsulated in adhesive, is not connected to the rest of the tooth. Now, Dave Pashley, the co-author, had been working with the Japanese intensely, and this is the connection that he got with Nakabashi, but a lot of the Japanese researchers like Junji Tagami, Toru Nikaido, Nakajima, Yoshiyama, almost all of them, Semobelli, almost all of them went and spent a year at Medical College of Georgia to study with Dave Pashley because his microscopy analysis was the best in the world, and he had the most experience, and chemists and dentists have to work together in adhesive dentistry. That's just a given. I've got a minor in chemistry and a bachelor's level. If you ask me to make a product, a bonding system, good luck. I mean, it would be, you know, it would be worse than a fraud. But so the production of science takes years. The dissemination of science takes years. The understanding of science takes years. The agreement to get a consensus on what this science means and how best to apply it, that takes years. And that's why 27 years after I first got that book, you know, we're still uh, uh, reaching towards a goal of unifying as many dentists as possible to do the most efficient treatment for the longest lasting restorations uh, that can be done so that we can do our best as dentists and we can get bonded and we can stay bonded. So with that, I think that lists, uh, that finishes up our uh, episode five. Till next time. <laughs>